Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. Chapter 22, The Theory of Hutchinson, out of Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry. The theory advanced by Brother William Hutchinson as to the origin and the progress of Freemasonry in his treatise first published in the year 1775, when the author was worshipful master of the Lodge of Concord, Barnard Castle, Durham, England, and entitled The Spirit of Masonry, is so strained and complex in what it sets forth as to require for a proper grasp of his views, not only a careful reading, but a thorough study of his book. This work received the approval of the Grand Lodge and has been everywhere admired ever since. We offer the reader a digest of the opinions on the rise and progress of the order which were held by this learned brother. Let it be said by way of preface to this review that however we may differ from the verdict of Hutchinson, he is entitled to our utmost respect for his scholarly ability. To the study of the history and the philosophy of Freemasonry, he brought a fund of information because he had previously been engaged in examining the church records and other old relics of the province of Durham. Of all the Masonic writers of the 18th century, Hutchinson was undoubtedly the most learned. In spite of his great ability in the search and arrangement of facts, the theory that he has set up as to the origin of the Masonic institution is altogether too weak to hold its ground, and indeed, in many items, discredited because of its absurd claims. Among all the opinions held by Hutchinson concerning the origin of Freemasonry, the one most differing from accepted standards is that which denies its source and its connection, at any period, with an operative society. It is our opinion, he says, that Masons in the present state of Masonry were never a body of architects. We ground a judgment of the nature of our profession on our ceremonials and flatter ourselves every Mason will be convinced that they have no relation to building and architecture, but are emblematical and imply moral and spiritual and religious tenets. At another place, while admitting that there were, in former times, builders of cities, towers, temples, and fortifications, he doubts that the artificers were formed into bodies ruled by their own proper laws and knowing mysteries and secrets which were kept from the world. Since he admits, as we will hereafter see, that Freemasonry existed at the Temple of Solomon, that it was there organized in what he calls the second stage of its progress, and that the builders of the edifice were Freemasons, one naturally imagines that Hutchinson would here meet an objection that cannot be got over by his theory, which entirely separates Freemasonry and architecture. But he attempts to get around this difficulty by supposing that the principles of Freemasonry had, before the commencement of the undertaking, been taught by King Solomon to the sages and religious men amongst his people, and that these chosen ones of Solomon, as a pious and holy duty, conducted the work. Their labors as builders were simply by chance, they were no more to be regarded by reason of this duty as architects by profession than were Abel, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, and David because of the building of their altars, which were, like the temple, works of piety and devotion. This theory, in which all connection between operative and speculative Freemasonry is completely cut away, and in which, in fact, the former is entirely cast aside, 
is peculiar to Hutchinson. No other writer, no matter to what source he may have credited the original rise of speculative Freemasonry, has denied that there was some period in the history of its progress when it was more or less closely linked with the operative art. While therefore it is plain that the opinion of Hutchinson is against that of all the other Masonic writers, it was equally evident that it contradicts all the well-founded facts of history. Besides these opinions concerning the non-operative character of the institution, Hutchinson has been scarcely less peculiar in his other views in respect to the rise and progress of Freemasonry and its relations to other societies of the olden times. Hutchinson's theory may, indeed, be regarded as especially and entirely his own. It is, therefore, worthy of study and criticism, rather in reference to the novelty of his ideas than in respect to anything of great historical value in the claims that he has advanced. A leading thought of Hutchinson in working out his theory is that Freemasonry, in its progress from the earliest times to the present day, has been divided into three stages, respectfully represented by the three ancient craft degrees. He does not give a very clear or satisfactory explanation of the reasons which led him to connect each of these stages of progress with one of the symbolical degrees. Indeed, the connection appears to be based upon a rather fanciful theory. The three stages into which he divides the progress of masonry from its birth onwards to modern times are separated from each other and distinctly marked by the code of religious morals and duties professed and taught by each. The first stage, which is represented by the entered apprentice degree, begins with Adam and the Garden of Eden and extends to the time of Moses. The religious code taught in this first stage of Freemasonry was confined to a knowledge of the God of nature and that acceptable service wherewith he was well pleased. To Adam, while in a state of purity, this knowledge was given, as well as that of all the science and learning which existed in the earliest ages of the world. When our first parent fell, although he lost his innocence, he still retained the memory of all that he had been taught while in the Garden of Eden. This very recollection was, indeed, a part of the penalty Adam suffered for having disobeyed God. However, it enabled him to teach his children the sciences which he had gained in Eden and the knowledge that he had acquired of nature and the God of nature. These lessons were given by the children of Adam to their families as the cornerstone and foundation of Freemasonry, whose teachings at that early period consisted of a belief in the God of nature and a knowledge of the sciences as they had been handed down by Adam to those who came after him. This system appears to have been very nearly the same as that afterwards called by Dr. Oliver the pure Freemasonry of antiquity. All of the descendants of Adams did not, however, retain this purity and simplicity of dogma. After the flood, when mankind became separated, the lessons which had been taught by the fathers of old fell into confusion and neglect and were misused by many peoples. Thus, the service of the true God, which had been taught in the pure Freemasonry of the first men, was fouled by the worship of idols. These seceders from the pure Adamic Freemasonry formed institutions of their own and declined as the first step downward from the simple worship of the God of nature into the errors of Sebaism or the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. They adopted symbols and allegories with which to secretly teach their false doctrines. The earliest of these seceders were the Egyptians, whose priests hid the mysteries of their religion from the people by symbols and picture writings that were to be known and read by none but the members of their own order. A similar system was adopted by the priests of Greece and Rome when they established their peculiar mysteries. These examples of conveying truth by symbolic methods of teaching were wisely followed by the Freemasons for the purpose of concealing their own mysteries from all but the initiated. 
From this we naturally conclude, although Hutchinson does not expressly say so, that according to his theory, Freemasonry was at that early period merely a religious profession whose principles, maxims, language, learning, and religion were derived from Eden, from the patriarchs, and from the sages of the East, and that the symbolism which now forms so essential an element of this system was not an original feature of it, but was borrowed, at a later period, from the mystical and religious associations of the pagans. Such, according to the theory of Hutchinson, was the first stage in the progress of Freemasonry represented by the entered apprentice degree. This was simply a belief in and a worship of the true God as the doctrine was taught by Adam and the patriarchs. It was a system of religious principles with few rites and ceremonies and fewer symbols. The second stage in the progress of Freemasonry Hutchinson supposes to be represented by the Fellowcraft degree, commencing at the time of Moses and extending through the whole period of the Jewish history to the coming of Christianity. According to the theory of Hutchinson, the Jewish lawgiver was, of course, in possession of the pure Freemasonry of the patriarchs, which constituted the first stage of the institution, but was enabled to extend its morals and beliefs because of the instructions in relation to God and the duties of man which had been personally revealed to him. In other words, Freemasonry in its first stage was universal in its religious teachings, requiring only a belief in the God of nature, as he had been revealed to Adam and his next of kin, but in the second stage, as first taught by Moses, that unlimited freedom of belief was exchanged for one in the deity as he had made himself known on Mount Sinai. That is to say, the second or mosaic stage of Freemasonry became Jewish in its profession. But in another respect, Freemasonry in its second stage assumed a different form from that which had marked it at the beginning. Moses, from his peculiar education, was well acquainted with the rites, the ceremonies, the picture alphabet, and the other symbols used by the Egyptian priesthood. Many of these he used in Freemasonry. Thus began that system, which, coming originally from the Egyptians and added to by the Druids, the Essenes, the Pythagoreans, and other mystical associations, at last was developed into that science of symbolism, which now forms so important and essential a feature of modern Freemasonry. A third change in the form of Freemasonry took place in its mosaic or Jewish stage. This was the introduction of the operative art of building among its disciples. Instances of this occurred in the days of Moses, when Aholiab, Bezalel, and other Freemasons were engaged in the construction of the tabernacle, and afterwards in the time of Solomon, when that king occupied his Freemasons in the building of the temple. However, as he has already been shown in this chapter, Hutchinson does not conclude from these facts that Freemasonry was ever connected in its origin with builders, architects, or mechanics. The business of these Freemasons as builders was an accident, and did not at all change or take the place they had as members of a purely speculative association. But it may be as well to give at this point, in his own words, an explanation of the manner in which the Freemasons became on certain occasions builders, and whence arose in modern times the mistaken idea that the Masonic profession consisted of architects. I presume, he says, that the name of Mason in this society doth not denote that the rise or origin of such society was solely from builders, architects, or mechanics. At the times in which Moses ordained the setting up of the sanctuary, and when Solomon was about to build the temple at Jerusalem, they selected from out of the people those men who were enlightened with the true faith, and being full of wisdom and religious fervor, were found proper to conduct those works of piety. It was on those occasions that our predecessors appeared to the world as architects and were formed into a body, under salutary rules, for the government of those who were employed in these great works. 
since which period builders have adopted the name of Masons as an honorary distinction and title to their profession. I am induced to believe the name of Mason has its derivation from a language in which it implies some indication or distinction of the nature of the society and that it has not its relation to architects. Freemasonry was not organized at the Temple of Solomon, as is believed by those who adopt the temple theory, but yet that building occupies, according to the views of Hutchinson, an important place in the history of the institution. It was erected during the second stage of the progress of Freemasonry, not as we must infer from the language of our author by the pagan operatives of Tyre, but solely by Israelitish Freemasons, or, if assisted by any, it was only by converts who, on or before their initiation, had accepted the Jewish faith. The language of Hutchinson is on this point not clear, yet we think that it admits only of the understanding which has been given. He says, As the sons of Aaron alone were admitted to the holy office and to the sacrificial rites, so none but devotees were admitted to this labor on the temple. On this stage we see those religious who had received the truth and the light of the understanding as possessed by the first men, embodies as artificers and engaged in this holy work as architects. Still more direct is the following statement, made in a later part of the work. Solomon was truly the executor of that plan which was revealed to him from above. He called forth the sages and religious men amongst his people to perform the work. He classed them according to their rank and their religious profession, as the priests of the temple were stationed in the solemn rites and ceremonies instituted there. The chosen ones of Solomon, as a pious and holy duty, conducted the work. Solomon did not, therefore, organize, as has very commonly been believed, a system of Freemasonry by the aid of his Tyrian workmen, and especially Hiram Abiff, who has always been designated by the craft as his chief builder. But he practiced and taught his descendants the primitive Freemasonry derived from Adam and changed into its sectarian Jewish form by Moses. The Freemasonry of Solomon, like that of the great lawgiver of the Israelites, was essentially Jewish in its religious thought. It but continued that second stage of Freemasonry, which lasted, according to the Hutchinsonian theory, until the arrival of Christianity. The wisdom and power of Solomon attracted the attention of the neighboring nations, and the splendor of the edifice which he had erected extended his fame and won the admiration of the most distant parts of the world, so that his name and his artificers became the wonder of mankind, and the works of the latter excited their imitation. Hence the Freemasons of Solomon were induced to travel from Jerusalem into various lands where they superintended the architectural labors of their other princes, converted infidels, initiated foreign brethren into their mysteries, and thus extended the order over the distant quarters of the known world. We see that according to the theory of Hutchinson, King Solomon, although not the founder of Freemasonry at the temple, and not our first Grand Master as he has been called, was the first to spread abroad the association into foreign countries. Until his time, it had been confined to the Jewish descendants of the patriarchs. The next, or third stage of the progress of Freemasonry, represented by the Master's Degree, begun at the coming of Christianity. As Hutchinson, in his description of the two preceding progressive classes of Freemasons, had credited to the first, as represented by the apprentices, only the knowledge of the God of nature as it prevailed in the earliest ages of the world, and to the second, as represented by the fellowcrafts, the further knowledge of God is revealed in the Mosaic mission. So to this third stage, as represented by Master Masons, he had assigned the complete and perfect knowledge of God as revealed in the Christian rule. Freemasonry is thus made by him to assume in this third stage of its growth a purely Christian character. 
The introduction of rites and ceremonies under the Jewish law, which had been derived from the neighboring heathen nations, had clouded and blotted the service of God. Therefore, it befouled the second stage of Freemasonry, as founded by Moses and followed by Solomon. God, seeing the ruin which was overcoming mankind by this abuse of his ordinances and laws, devised a new plan for saving his creatures from the errors into which they had fallen. And this scheme was shown in the third or master stage in the progressive course of Freemasonry. The master's degree is in this theory exclusively a Christian invention. The legend has a purely Christian meaning, and the allegory of Hiram Abiff is made to refer to the death or abolition of the Jewish law and the founding of a new order of things under Jesus Christ. A few extracts from the discussion by Hutchinson will place this theory very clearly before the reader. The death and burial of the master builder, and these causing the loss of the true word, are thus applied to the Christian dispensation. Piety, which had planned the temple of Jerusalem, was expunged. The reverence and adoration due to the divinity was buried in the filth and rubbish of the world. Persecution had dispersed the few who retained their obedience, and the name of the true God was almost lost and forgotten among men. In this situation, it might well be said that the guide to heaven was lost and the master of the works of righteousness was smitten. Again, true religion was fled. Those who sought her through the wisdom of the ancients were not able to raise her. She eluded the grasp, and their polluted hands were stretched forth in vain for her restoration. Finally, he explains the allegory of the third degree as directly referring to Christ in the following words. The great father of all, commiserating the miseries of the world, sent his only son, who was innocence itself, to teach the doctrine of salvation, by whom man was raised from the death of sin unto the life of righteousness, from the tomb of corruption under the chambers of hope, from the darkness of despair to the celestial beams of faith. And finally, that there may be no doubt of his theory that the third degree was altogether Christian in its origin and design, he explicitly says, Thus the master mason represents a man under the Christian doctrine saved from the grave of iniquity and raised to the faith of salvation. As the great testimonial that we are risen from the state of corruption, we bear the emblem of the Holy Trinity as the insignia of our vows and of the origin of the master's order. The third or master's degree made Christian in type, that is, the meaning of its symbols referring to Christ and to Christian dogmas, is not peculiar to nor original with Hutchinson. It was the accepted belief of almost all the authorities of his time, and several of the rituals of the 18th century contained plain traces of it. It was not, indeed, until the rewriting of the lectures by Dr. Samuel Hemming in 1813 that nearly all the references of them to Christianity were taken out. Even as late as the middle of the 19th century, Dr. Oliver had clearly pointed out that if he had not been fully convinced that Freemasonry is a system of Christian ethics, that it gives its aid to point the way to the Grand Lodge above through the cross of Christ, he should never have been found among the number of its advocates. Notwithstanding that the Grand Lodge of England had authoritatively declared in the year 1723 that Masonry required a belief only in that religion in which all men agree, the tendency among all our early writers after the revival of 1717 was to Christianize the institution. An understanding of the symbols of Freemasonry from a Christian point of view was, therefore, at the period when Hutchinson advanced his theory, neither new to the craft nor belonging entirely to him. The peculiarity and novelty of his beliefs were not in his Christian explanation of the symbols, but in the view that he has taken of the origin and historical value of the legend of the third degree. 
At least from the time of Anderson and de Segalier, the legend of Hiram Abiff has been accepted by the craft as a historical statement of an event that actually occurred. Even the most skeptical writers of the present day receive it as a myth which possibly has been founded upon events that have been misplaced in their passage down the stream of tradition. Neither of these views appears to have been entertained by Hutchinson. We look in vain throughout his work for any reference to the legend as connected with Hiram Abiff. In his lecture on the temple at Jerusalem, he gives the details of the labors of Solomon in the construction of that edifice, but the name of Hiram does not once occur except in the extracts that he makes from the book of Kings in the Bible and from the antiquities of Josephus. Indeed, we must infer that he did not recognize Hiram Abiff as a Freemason, for he expressly says that all the Masons at the temple were Israelites and believers in the Jewish faith. In a later lecture on the secrecy of Masons, he in fact undervalues Hiram Abiff as an architect, then says that he does not doubt that Hiram's knowledge was in the business of a statuary and painter, and that he made graven images of stone and wood and molted images in metals, thus placing him in a subordinate position and completely ignoring the rank given to him in all the Masonic rituals as the equal and associate of Solomon and as being the master builder of the temple. There is nowhere to be found in the work of Hutchinson any reference, however distant, to what happened at the death and raising of the widow's son. He must have been acquainted with the legend because it was preserved and taught in the lodges that he visited. But he speaks in the most general terms of the third degree as symbolizing the decline and death of religion and the moral resurrection of man in the new or Christian doctrine. If he believed in the truth of his own theory, and we are bound to suppose that he did, then he could not but have looked upon the details of the master's legend as absolutely false, for the legend and his theory can in no way be reconciled. Assuming that we rightly understand the message of Hutchinson, which it must be admitted is sometimes confused and the ideas are not plainly presented, he denies the existence of the third degree at the temple. That edifice was built, according to his theory, within the period of the second stage of the progress of Freemasonry. Now that stage, which was begun by Moses, was represented by the Fellowcraft's degree. It was not until the coming of Christ that the Master's degree with its rites and ceremonies came into existence in the third stage of the progress of Freemasonry, which was represented by that degree. Indeed, in the following passage, he very clearly makes that statement. The ceremonies now known to Masons prove that the testimonials and insignia of the Master's order in the present state of Masonry were devised within the ages of Christianity and we are confident there are not any records in being in any nation or in any language which can show them to be pertinent to any other system or give them greater antiquity. We cannot explain this language with any respect for consistency and for the meaning of the words except by adopting the following explanation of the Hutchinsonian theory. At the building of the temple, the Freemasonry then prevailing, which was the second or fellowcraft stage, was merely a system of religious ethics in which the doctrines of the Jewish faith, as revealed to Moses, had been united to the simple creed of the patriarchs, which was the first or apprentice stage of the institution. There was at that time no knowledge of the legend of Hiram Abiff, which was a myth brought forward later on in the third or master stage of the progress of the order. It was not until after the coming of Jesus Christ within the ages of Christianity that the death and raising of the master builder was planned as a mythical symbol to form what Hutchinson calls the testimonials and insignia of the master's order. The myth or legend thus made was to be used as a symbol of the change which took place in the religious system of masonry when the third stage of its progress was brought about by the invention of the master's degree. 
Here again, Hutchinson differs from all the writers before him or who have followed him. The standard belief, the orthodox doctrine of all those who have given a Christian meaning to the legend of the third degree, is that it is the story of events which actually occurred at the building of the Temple of Solomon, that it was afterward, on the coming of Christianity, adopted as a symbol whereby the death and raising of Hiram Abiff were considered as a type of the sufferings and death, the resurrection and ascension of Christ. No words of Hutchinson give expression to any such idea. With him, the legend of Hiram the Builder is simply an allegory, invented at a much later period than that in which the events it details are supposed to have occurred, for the purpose of symbolizing the death and burial of the Jewish law with the Freemasonry which it had decayed and in the bringing to life of this dead Freemasonry in a new and perfect form under the Christian order of things. Such is the Hutchinsonian theory of the origin and progress of Freemasonry. It is sui generis, peculiar to Hutchinson, and has been advanced or maintained by no other Masonic writer before or since. It may be presented in a very few words. One, Freemasonry was first taught by Adam after the fall to his descendants and continued through the patriarchal age. It had a simple code of ethics, teaching only a belief in the God of nature. That was the Freemasonry of the Entered Apprentice. Two, then it was enlarged by Moses and confirmed by Solomon and thus lasted until the time of Christ. To its expanded code of ethics was added a number of symbols taken from the Egyptian priesthood. Its religion was a belief in God as he had been revealed to the Jewish nation. That was the Freemasonry of the Fellowcraft. 3. The Freemasonry of this second stage becoming valueless because of the decay of the Jewish law, it was therefore abolished, and the third stage was established in its place. This third stage was formed by the teachings of Christ, and the religion it sets forth is that which was revealed by him. That is the Freemasonry of the Master Mason. 4. Therefore, the three stages of Freemasonry present three forms of religion. First, the patriarchal. Second, the Jewish. Third, the Christian. Freemasonry, having thus reached its last stage of progress, has continued in this form to the present day. And now Hutchinson proceeds to advance his theory as to its introduction and growth in England. He had already accounted for its extension into other quarters of the world because of the spreading out and travels of King Solomon's Freemasons after the completion of the temple. He thinks that during the first age of Freemasonry, the patriarchal, its principles were taught and practiced by the Druids. They received them from the Phoenicians who visited England for trading purposes at a very remote time in the world's history. The second stage, the Jewish, was with its ceremonials introduced among them by the Masons of Solomon after the building of the temple, but at what precise period he cannot tell. The third and perfect form, as developed in the third stage, must have been adopted upon the conversion of the Druidical worshippers to Christianity, having been brought into England, as we should suppose, by the Christian missionaries who came from Rome into that country. While Hutchinson denies that there was ever any connection between the operative and speculative Freemasons, he admits that among the former there might have been a few of the latter. He accounts for this fact in the following manner. After Christianity had become the popular religion of England, the officials of the faith employed themselves in founding religious houses and in building churches. From the duty of the assisting in this pious work, no man of whatever rank or profession was freed. There was also a set of men called holy work folk, to whom were given in trust certain lands, which they held because of repairing, building, or defending churches and tombs, for which labors they were released from all duties due to the lords of the land or for military service. 
These persons were stonecutters and builders, and might, he thinks, have been speculative Freemasons, and were probably selected from that body. These men, he says, come the nearest to a similitude of Solomon's Masons, and the title of free and accepted Masons of any degree of architects we have gained any knowledge of. But he professes his ignorance whether their initiation was attended with peculiar ceremonies, or by what laws they were regulated. That they had any connection with the speculative order, whose origin from Adam he had been tracing, is denied. Lastly, he credits the moral teaching of the Freemasonry of the present day to the school of Pythagoras and to the Basilidians, a sect of Christians who flourished in the second century. For this opinion, so far as it relates to Pythagoras, he is indebted to the celebrated Leland manuscript, of whose genuineness he had not the slightest doubt. These precepts and the Egyptian symbols introduced by Moses with Jewish additions are, in his opinion, the system of modern Freemasonry as it has been perfected by the Christian order and meaning applied to it. Such is the theory of Hutchinson as to the origin and progress of speculative Freemasonry. That it has been accepted as a whole by no other writer is not surprising. Not only is it unsupported by the facts of history, but is actually contradicted by every Masonic document known to us to be in existence. This is indeed a mere body of myths which are not clad with the slightest garment of probability. Yet there are, here and there, some glimmerings of truth, such as the attempt to accurately give a real character to Hiram Abiff, and there are allusions to the holy work folk as showing a connection between operative and speculative masonry. This valuable suggestion, though not pushed far enough by Hutchinson, may afford a very helpful starting point for further studies to the searcher after historic truth in Freemasonry. Thanks for listening. That ends chapter 22. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.